Welcome to Decades From Home, a podcast about Germany. I'm Nick Alton of 40percentgerman.com, and as always, I'm joined by co-host Dilly Algama and our stalwart producer, Simon Josie, to discuss the weird and wonderful side of living in Germany. Hey, you two, how are we doing? Good, thanks, Nick. Yourself? I'm good, too. Thank you, Nick. How are you? Yeah, apparently Simon doesn't care about you, Dilly. <laughs> how are you, Dilly? I care. Are you okay? Are you all right? Thank you, Nick. I, I'll be I... your friend. It's no problem. <laughs> And, and yes, Simon, I am okay. But before we do anything or go any further, I've got some news for both of you. The draw for the European Championships tickets was today. And I am sad to report that we did not get any tickets. <laughs> <laughs> My bank balance is slightly happier about this realization, but I don't know anyone who got any tickets. I'm pretty sure all those tickets went somewhere else. Someone else has got them. But... um. I don't know. I saw some people on Twitter saying they hadn't. No, no one in the fantasy football league that I'm part of got tickets, and we all applied. So, yeah, shame. That's um, that's really disappointing. I think I saw someone on Blue Sky had got a quarterfinal in Berlin, and I'm like, oh yeah. And it was like someone who I, I was thinking, I bet you call it soccer as well. So you don't even deserve to be going. <laughs> Always call it soccer. Always call it soccer, especially when you're in front of British people. Say it to them. Say it loud and proud. I like to go back to Britain and call it soccer and start arguments, but that's just the way I'm inclined. So sorry to be the bearer of bad news and deliver that bad news oh, to you. No. But um but but as you're recovering from that bombshell, I've got a pop quiz for your hot shots. Okay. You're driving down the road, you have two small children in the back. One begins violently vomiting all over themselves. What do you do? What do you do? Uh, you go first, uh, Dilly. Haven't you raised two kids? I think you're more suited. Oh, yeah, I'm I'm, I'm totally ready to answer this. Do me proud, Simon. No, 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 Dilly. No, Dilly, what would you do? Oh. <laughs> you're trying to avoid the answer, so I'm, I'm really going to push Christ, it now. Fucking Christ, was I too subtle for the two of you? I'm one of those people who can't watch people vomiting, who can't hear the sounds of vomiting because I do it myself. And this, uh, while I'm a teacher in a school, which means that when there are kids throwing up, I have to run the other way, but I organize for other people to come and take care of their throw up. I can't even stand the smell. That's convenient. And I, I used to go to school in a school van. So like there were about 30 kids in a fucking van and there was a van driver and a van auntie, like the, the admin people. And there was always at least two kids who would throw up on the way to school. And, you know, anything they drink, like milk, just before they sit off to school, they would throw up. If it's chocolate milk, it, the vomit looks like chocolate milk. And the whole mm -hmm. van would stink of vomit. We'd have to see it mm -hmm. and they'd have flecks of curdled milk all over them. I can't stand mm -hmm. it. Simon, take over. Yeah, I guess I'm because I'm kind of practically minded i would think well first of all you have to maintain uh, control of the car what do they say um aviate navigate communicate i think you you need to do those those three things right <laughs> i'm not i'm not landing a fucking stealth bomber <laughs> <laughs> and then you know you find somewhere safe to pull over and, and deal with the child but the other practical thing i was thinking it's really important not to shame the child like and uh and say, hey, you know, this happens. Um, don't feel bad about it because there's nothing worse. I mean, you already feel bad about vomiting, as, as Dilly's just informed us in graphic detail. But 
I think it's important that you don't sort of become psychologically hung up about it, as apparently Dilly is, about vomiting. Yeah, because it just ruins your life otherwise, as it clearly has ruined Dilly's life. <laughs> just, a, just a bit. So, so what happened to me, this was on Saturday afternoon. I told you last week that, that my daughter was, was not feeling well and been off from the kindergarten. She managed to go into the kindergarten finally on Friday, um, which was to, to everyone's celebration because it was St. Martin's Day, mm. right? Which meant they got to build lanterns and then we went on the St. Martin's Day walk. I had to spend 10 minutes in a church. It was terrible, but then it was nice once we got out. Um, but yeah, it was fine. And then um, Saturday came round and my daughter had been complaining about being sick. And I was kind of like, is she just trying it on again? And she kept saying, my bhaktudve, and I was like, that's not great. And then we went to, I don't know where we were going. We were going somewhere, got her in the car. And uh, this is funny, this, right? Because I think, I th like, a lot of people would think being, like, a bit of a bit of a wastrel in your 20s and a bit of a, a pisshead like I was in, my, in your 20s would be a waste of time. But actually, it gave me some key knowledge that would would be very useful in this particular scenario so we're sitting in the car we're driving and i hear a sound and straight away i knew exactly what it was a kind of belch and then a liquidy sound and i was like oh god she's vomiting on herself i was in the passenger seat so i turned around and looked and she's just basically placidly being sick all over herself um, which uh, you said don't shame them and I, that was one of the first instincts was like don't make a big sh show out of it she probably feels this is a bad thing. And I said, oh, darling, are you okay? I had to stifle my laughter because it was objectively incredibly funny because children being sick on themselves isn't, anyone being sick on themselves is incredibly funny. And it's not the first time I've dealt with someone being sick on them. I've dealt with adults being sick on themselves when we've been out on a night out. So it's not, not a biggie for me. But it also, it reminded me how far I've come in the three years since my daughter's birth where my biggest fear when before the baby when she before she was born was dealing with bodily fluids and bodily mm -hmm. functions and whether I'd be capable of doing it and and it was just didn't eat water off a duck's back didn't even matter didn't didn't and I never felt didn't feel sick I never do I, I just dealt with it a lot of cleaning involved um but but yeah it was it was it was pretty pretty full on for about 10 minutes my wife is exactly like you Dilly can't can't handle vomit in mm. any way shape or form but um i will say try and be nice don't shame them but if you get okay. a chance piss yourself a laughter because it's really funny it's so funny i think i have felt the same kind of grace from my boyfriend uh because when i throw up or i'm sick uh in any sort of fluidy way he really takes it in his stride and one day I remember like when we were first going out and I was sick and I remember asking him, you probably don't want to hear about blood while you're eating or about me vomiting. And he told me that his father had been an anesthesiologist and this was dinner talk. Mm -hmm. So, you know, he used to mm -hmm. talk about wounds and, and, and sepsis or pus and whatnot every day at dinner. Mm -hmm. This is fucking nothing. And, and, and yeah. he made me com feel completely at ease about all my disgusting bodily fluids. And that was, that was one mm -hmm. of the nicest things he's done for me. I, um, I remember the first time our eldest son was carsick. We were driving in from the suburbs into downtown Beijing and he was sick. And, and of course, the 
funny thing for us was that he didn't have the the language to describe what was happening. So mm. he just said, "Oh, you know, mummy, daddy, I've just had a big cough." Oh. <laughs> Technical and so, cough. And so that's been the terminology we've sort of used ever since. <laughs> if you're sick, you're having a big cough. A big cough. Yeah, yeah, my daughter definitely had a big cough. Um, yeah, but I mean, it continued through Sunday and into Monday as well. Um, turned out she'd had an, a, a sort of allergic or some kind of reaction to the medicine she was on to mm. clear up the scarlet fever. And so she was, she was not, she wasn't well. I felt so sorry for her. Um, the, the, the next time she was sick was when she was literally eating and she was sick all over the food she was Oh, eating. no. <laughs> Go on. Go on. And, and my wife, my wife just lost her mind. She like left the room, couldn't take it. I <laughs> yeah. waited until she finished and then I gave, I gave her a bucket and that was so sweet. I said to her like, this is your bucket. You've got to look after it. You've got to give it a name. She's like, daddy, I don't know what to call my bucket. And I was like, we're going to call the bucket Gary. She's like, Gary the bucket. And so she carried Gary the bucket around with her for about 48 hours. Aww. Everywhere she went, she had a green bucket called. And she'd, go, she'd be like, I've got Daddy, I've got Gary, I've got Gary. Aww. And it was so sweet. Um, but it was like it was like a way of making her feel like it wasn't so bad. And it was like maybe it was a little bit special for her. She had this like bucket. And so she felt a little bit better about it. But yeah, it was it was objectively hilarious, cute and disgusting all at, all at once. Uh, it's nice when you get the trifecta for sure. My brother is the same as me, and uh, he can't mm. even watch babies eating banana. It's that bad with him. <laughs> <laughs> you know, with food everywhere, he can't watch it. And yeah. I remember, like, he became a father in December, and he, mm -hmm. he on his shoulder, there's, like, this perpetual wet patch. Mm -hmm. and, um, mm -hmm. and I'm like, how are you? And, you know, the little baby, he spits, he spits up. And my brother's just like, you know, mm -hmm. he wipes it away like it's a mosquito bite or something. And I'm like, oh, ew, how can you do that? He's like, yeah, yeah, it's nothing. It's nothing. You just get used, you get used to it. Like, it's much easier when it's 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 your child, I guess, or, or, or you've taken sort of responsibility for the child. But like, I think it's, it, it's never, it's never that bad. And like, boys are definitely worse than girls in my experience. Girls generally hold their their food and themselves like a lot better as babies my, my son is much worse for that but i take a massive amount of pride in being able to feed my son and then burp him like straight away like like get him on his shoulder pat on the back a couple of well-placed pats you feel that the, the gas is loosening and the, he just burps really loudly and then you're like yep that's how good i am at being a parent <laughs> my measurement of parental skills is being able to make your child burp at will. Um, and yes, I mean, that's, that's, mm. that's something that just happens. You need a fine line in like little bits of like, um, spuktuch against this thing is what my wife calls it. Like a speed up clock. So, yeah. Basically we've got loads of those. Yeah. A big, really, really big ones. They sell really big ones that like fold out into full on like mats almost. That's the ones you want because mm. you just can reuse them over and over again. Um, yeah, so that's what that's what's good. That's that was my that was my weekend and enjoying that uh, misadventure. Although Saint Martin's Day was good, I did like Saint Martin's Day. Mm. That was a whole new vibe. We did Saint Martin's Day last year, but this time it was fully organised by the kindergarten. So that was a a new a new thing. Do you know what? It's really funny because a lot of the talk in the last week has been about integration with the immigration law in Germany, mm. uh, discussions about integration and. It's that article we talked about the other week with the build article that was kind of 
light culture light almost this idea of guiding culture and telling migrants how they should behave and one of the things that i'd seen in that that week was a tweet about how migrants need to accept that german people celebrate saint martin's day as if saint martin's oh, day was the crux that? of all like yeah i did i forget i won't know it was an fdp politician but I, I wrote about it in the blog so um just a, a quick plug read the most recent blog entry on 40 percent german and you'll you'll get a sense of what we're talking about but what was hilarious for me is i walked to the 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 kindergarten and <laughs> so uh, this is what you I, I i the way we had to do it i had to drop my wife and, and daughter and my son off and then drive and park the car at the kindergarten and then walk over to meet them right and we're meeting them in the park and what i hadn't appreciated is there was two groups so i walk up and there's a group of kids with lanterns and i'm sort of it's quite just like dark and i can't really see anyone i'm like maybe i'll see my wife and the kid and i look around and i'm like is this a different kindergarten <laughs> group is this a different like an entirely different class same kindergarten different age group so I was like, and I saw someone I knew and I was like, is it, which group's this? And I, oh, it's group one. And I said, oh, I'm group two. And I had to run around the park to find my group. So I eventually found them. And lo and behold, who were the, the vast majority of people, including us, were, were migrants. So there was people from all over, all over Europe. Mm. Um, there, there was, unsurprisingly, as I knew there would be, people in headscarves, as if like Muslim people wouldn't want to partake in any kind of kindergarten celebration. <laughs> there was people of color there was there was uh, polish people there was a french couple there was loads of people from different parts of of, of, of europe and i just like thought about it and i'm like saint martin's day isn't some kind of german only celebration or mark of pure german or mark of pure germanness it is it's just a thing that kids go to and celebrate and people don't really care that much what background they come from so i was kind of i just thought that was really funny as i was watching it given the rancid conversation about guiding cultures and shit like that but um yeah that's my two cents i'm not sure how you feel about saint martin's day i'm not sure it's a massive celebration for either of you really is it was it big in, in your school uh dilly uh we didn't do anything for saint martin's day i think i was also sick that week so or maybe i was on holiday no wait there was I, no lantern love or something like that I, last week i wasn't sick last week i was not on holiday and we didn't do anything to do with lanterns we didn't have any lantern related activities in school because sometimes it's a lantern lauf and sometimes it's a Saint Martin Zug, so like parade or, or or procession. There is in my town. It's very huge, and on the tenth, I think in the evening, you have like a lot of people out with various kinds of lantern paraphernalia, mm. and all the restaurants are booked on the night of the eleventh. Anywhere where they serve goose, yeah. Uh, well, yeah, goose is the big connector with. With Saint Martin's Day for is sure. Is it? Is um, it? Yeah, yeah. Goose and Saint Martin's Day go together. Ah, oh, I did not know this. This is why I've never been able to have a dinner out on my birthday in Sachsen-Anhalt. Oh yeah, it's, haven't we just hidden the lead there? Haven't we? It was your birthday. You've kept that bloody quiet. I didn't realize it was your birthday. Oh no, you thought vomiting was much better as a topic. <laughs> No, you didn't even tell us last week. Oh, it's my birthday at the weekend. You gave us no one. Like, this is a typical Nick kind of loudmouth. It's like you knew it was my birthday about two months before it was my actual birthday. Mm -hmm. I think I mentioned it every week on the podcast um, or at least on the when, before we recorded. And you, the only, the first I realize it's your birthday is when I see a bloody tweet on <laughs> the other day. I was like, oh, you kept that quiet. 
Uh, welcome to the 40 Club, Dilly. That's uh, what I'm saying. Lovely to be here, Nick. Thank you. And alles gut zum Geburtstag auch. Ah, vielen Dank. <laughs> um, so you didn't get to go out for dinner on your birthday? I didn't because we tried. Okay, I've been living here since January last year. I mean, I, I like having some goose for my birthday. And mm -hmm. um, yeah, last year, like my boyfriend started calling places for reservations and they were all mm -hmm. booked out. So this year, I we mm -hmm. just made like an Arab uh, rice and chicken dish called kabsa, which is made with whole mm -hmm. dried limes, by the way. Whole dried limes is a thing. And I did not know this till last week. And we made a lamb biryani, which is a Sri Lankan Persian thing. And that was, yeah. Hot diggity dog. Hot diggity dog. That's better than goose, man. <laughs> That's better than goose, Dilly. That's far better than goose. Like, give me the option of lamb biryani or a goose. You know which one I'm bloody choosing. It's really good. Uh, all day. Yeah. All day, every day. Well, it sounds like you had a good time. I made like a, a 3.5 liter pot of biryani uh, so that my boyfriend has leftovers. That's how nice I am. Apparently, I mean, I feel like you should be you should be sending them to all corners of Germany so that we can get a get a go as well. But <laughs> no pressure. One day, um, one just day. so you know, whenever we whenever we the three of us finally actually meet yeah. up in person, you're cooking. Uh, <laughs> <so>. <laughs> you know, I made I made a resolution a few years ago to never ever be pressured into cooking for people because it's a very special thing, and I only do it for people that I absolutely love. And I would be. All right, well, we're, 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 we're fucked, Simon, then. <laughs> <laughs> but I'm, I'm assuming you were, that your finishing of the sentence was that you would cook for us, right? I did. I did. If you hadn't interrupted me, Midway, you'd have heard it, too. <laughs> <laughs> That's it's your own fault for having a podcast with a loudmouth arsehole like me. Uh, <laughs> let's, let's continue in that vein, then. Um, the 11th, the 11th is obviously an opportunity for Dilly to celebrate her birthday and not get a goose. But it's also the start of fashion, uh, the 11th of the 11th, the start of the, is it the fifth season? Is that what they call it? So yeah, fashion has officially been been begun this past weekend. And uh, what I love about fashion is I've been here for over a decade and every year I learn something new about this rather strange kind of celebration and the thing that i learned this time around that was a little bit odd was the fact that in dusseldorf cologne and other north rhine westfalen cities there's like this this weird event where someone dresses up as a jester who's called the is it the hopper ditz i think is the name this is in dusseldorf of course and it they, is like thousands of people congregate around the town hall to see the Hopperditz, this jester-type character, climb out a pot of mustard and give a speech, which is then the response to the speech is given by the mayor of the city who is standing on an opposite balcony. And I was like, if I didn't know anything about Germany and nothing about fashion, I would think that was the most European, bizarre kind of event where like a guy dressed as a jester comes out of a pot of mustard. Not just any mustard, by the way, it's a branded type of mustard <laughs> i'm like what is going on is it tommy uh, no it's not tommy oh, okay. i'm afraid i'd have to double check uh what it is but um i believe it's a specific brand every year uh the same brand i believe every year uh which always makes me laugh a little bit uh yeah it's Löwensenf, uh which is a dusseldorf company oh, i've never had that um, should try and then when uh on ash wednesday which will come about just before easter next year 
the the hoppedit's effigy is is cremated and then symbolically buried in the garden of the Dusseldorf City Museum which is also honored with like ridiculous kind of mourning lamentations and wailing and gnashing of teeth so it's not quite over yet but yeah so fashion's begun i haven't noticed anything in my small town and i was wondering a whether um you've seen any uh, fashion like celebrations where you are and b whether you uh, have taken part maybe or or um or whether you would take part in fashion Oh, absolutely. You know, I, I keep my costume dry cleaned, ready for use on. <laughs> yeah, what do you think, Nick? <laughs> What's the costume? What's the costume, Dilly? Ah, oh, desperate to know what Dilly's costume is. Even if it's not real, I want to know what you, what would you dress up as? I bet, hey, can I guess? Loudmouth Nick again. Um, I bet you it's a ladybird. A ladybird? Yeah, yeah. Because that's like the, the costume of choice. Ladybird, cowboy superhero those are the ones that i always see the most so okay it's a ladybird i didn't know that people wear different costumes like the, the, they have a choice so we were in halle for my birthday and hi to anybody listening in from halle were you also there in the city when um so they kick off the carnival uh stuff at 11 11 on the 11th day of the 11th month and I, I didn't realize this because I just saw a lot of people in kilts and like Highland costumes. And I remember asking my boyfriend, like, what the fuck is that about? And then he said, oh, yeah, it's it's a carnival. And I think it's, you know, the fushing or something. I was like, oh, but why? what's with the Highland thing? What's with the Scottish thing? And because it, it felt very weird to see kilts and then to hear... Schläger? Is it Schläger or Schlager? Schlager. What is that about? If that is not music, it's just noise. It's just noise. Dear listener, Dilly does not represent the opinions of the podcast in any way, <laughs> shape or form. <laughs> Do you like Schlager, the two of you? I mean, no, but, but like, I appreciate it as an art form, but I would not listen to it as a, as a rule, no. So, like, I'm here in Fushing or Carnival uh, Central, being in Bonn, and um, my youngest son just came back from from New Zealand uh, last week, and he he went to a big party, the you know Elfter Elfter party in Köln on on Saturday, and several weeks or maybe a month or so ago, his German friends sent him a playlist to listen to on Spotify of Schlager music so that he could be <laughs> prepared and ready to go. And we were driving along in the car and he was playing it to me and he was singing along with it. So he'd already, already understood it. But of course, what he found really interesting is he said, oh, all these ones in Kirsch, which is the the dialect of of the Kern area, he, he can't understand a word of it, uh, which is uh, probably not a surprise to any of us. But um, yeah, so he actually knows more about it. Maybe I should drag him in for you to interview because because I I haven't even I haven't been myself. Too old, too boring. Yeah, I've only been to a couple. I've not been to many. I do. So did he learn the? Did he learn how to sing it phonetically then? Like he, we were listening to quite a lot of German hip hop because we're going. Oh yeah, this is quite good. This is good. And then he said, Oh, I'll play you some Schlager. And so okay, so mm. we started listening to that. And some of it was in Hochdeutsch, and that was okay. But then he said, oh, but yeah, listen to this. It sounds like it's Dutch. 
And he goes, it's Kirsch. It's just, yeah, it's a, just a whole different language. Yeah. So it's really, yeah, it's really different kettle of fish. Different, yeah, different dialect. But yeah, and now Dilly's declared herself an anti Schlager fan. Mm. Uh, we, we're going to have to do a lot of a lot of work to reclaim those listeners that we lost. <laughs> I didn't realize that it's such a big deal. I am. Um... Hello, Helena Fisher. Hello. Come yeah, on. I don't like One of the, the biggest recording acts. We, okay, but but clearly a lot of people do. <laughs> <laughs> clearly a lot of people do. But are any of them listeners of the podcast? I'm sure they'll let us know. I'm sure there'll be emails flooding in saying, how dare you denigrate the, the, the Saint Helena Fisher. Um, I mean, no, it's, it's not, it's not the, the greatest musical choice I think anyone's ever made, but, um, there's something endearing, I think about Schlager at least. You're just sucking up to your German fans. I'll get lost. I don't have any something, fans. I just, something I just endearing. Have, oh, yeah. I, I have potential fans. <laughs> As regular listeners know, the second half of the show is usually our chance to focus on some specific news stories from the last week in Germany. But this week, we have something a little bit special for you, listener. We are joined by Izzy Choksi and Anne-Marie Harrison of the Radio Spätkauf podcast and also hosts of the new and frankly fantastic podcast, Sticking Point Voices of Germany's Climate Movement, which takes listeners through the main waves of Germany's climate movement from the 70s and 80s up to today. So, yeah, welcome to you both. Thanks for having us. Thank you. Great to be here. Yeah. Um, I'm really happy you've, you've been able to join us because uh, I've got loads of questions. I've got to say, I was sort of gushing before we would start the record, but I've really, really enjoyed the, the podcast. There's, there's only two episodes out so far. Yeah. The third one's coming out soon, though. Mm, it's coming out soon. Yeah. I'm really looking forward to it. I, it's, I think it's a, a fantastic bit of work. And um, so, yeah, I'm really, really happy that we get to have a conversation about it. So I'll just hit you with my first tough question which is uh, for those listeners who may not know your your, um, your regular podcast um, Radio Spätkauf um, I'm Marie Izzy uh, tell us a little bit about yourselves I'm Izzy Choksi I'm a regular host on Radio Spätkauf I started hosting on Spätkauf around uh, two two and a half years ago now and I moved to Berlin about 11 years ago and this is uh, unfortunately not my day job I work instead as a climate policy analyst at a climate think tank and yeah Adam Marie brought this idea for a podcast to me at the beginning of the year and we've been working on it since since January so far two episodes and a third one coming out soon so I am a journalist and I actually met Izzy when I came to Berlin uh, for a master's in history and we started working together years ago on a feminist discussion group and then it was awesome because when i first moved to berlin i was actually listening to radio Spätkauf as a fan and so i've been a fan for years and years and then um at some point izzy joined and us being friends i noticed her on the pod and then hopped on myself and was yeah just really excited to get to work together get to collaborate and since i'm a freelance journalist i've been doing mostly print as far as my background goes and I'm trying to transition into to do more audio work but mm -hmm. um currently it's just passion project all unpaid um but yeah it's not just the way <laughs> donations are welcome yeah, yeah too right it's on the patreon come have a look 
Give me a coffee. Um, yeah. So you mentioned, as, as you mentioned, um, Anne-Marie, it was, it was you that came up with, um, originally with the idea uh, to create the mini series. I mean, it's, it's funny because Izzy just mentioned you work for a climate think tank and it's like, all right, w w you could have had this idea too, but I'm curious, like what initially motivated you? Was it the journalistic aspect or was it just because everything's on fire and we need to do something? I mean, what's the, what was your sort of main motivation? I mean, everything being on fire, um, figuratively and literally mm. coming from California is certainly a motivator. Um, I also was coming at it from the perspective of a journalist who also has was studying post-colonial revolutionary groups in my my history masters and i specifically one of the papers i wrote looked at the red army faction and how the media in west germany in the 70s and 60s was talking and framing the red army faction who were this marxist leninist guerrilla group basically and there was this moment last fall so about like a little over a year ago where i noticed how modern-day German media was talking about this group, Letzte Generation, and they were making comparisons mm. to the Red Army faction. And I just, I got, yeah, I just got really scared, I think. I mean, as, as a journalist who's, like, always very conscious about what kind of words I'm using, and then having studied this group and the, you know, the deaths that their actions actually led to, and then looking at these mostly young people in Letzte Generation who were doing very different things. Um, I was just kind of appalled by the fact that certain verbiage was being repeated and repeated without any sort of broader analysis. And so I, I mean, I think as a freelance journalist, I get a little bit more leeway than say a journalist who's working for like one of the big media houses here to be critical of this kind of thing. And so I basically, I think I just called Izzy at one point and I was like, hey, I've got this, I've got this friend with all this climate knowledge. Mm -hmm. Let's do something. Cause um it really felt like there was a big narrative that was missing from the media coverage. Um, not just of Vesta Generation, but I felt like also as an international living in Berlin, I didn't feel like I had a good sense of what the climate movement was, what its history was, and who Letzte Generation was. I felt like, you know, Izzy could lend a lot of that expertise to flushing some of those things out yeah oh yeah I, I, I mean i really feel that i think one of the things i really enjoyed about the podcast is the fact that it it's it's there's a lot of information but it isn't it isn't overwhelming and i guess i mean i guess that's that's partially to do with sort of your your both your backgrounds but obviously uh, the question i want to sort of ask is is like with all this climate knowledge do you find it difficult to kind of like if I, I'm, I lecture, so when I explain stuff, I explain stuff in the longest winded way possible. <laughs> like, you know, in what you do in the podcast, I think it's really interesting is it's really succinct and you have these little explainers in the middle of the, the show and you like stop and go, oh, do we need to explain this? And then you sort of, you, you give a lot of detail. Do you find it difficult to to stay focused on, on, on those sort of explainers or do you do you find that you're sort of cutting bits out and you're like, oh God, I, that's really important, but I have to cut it out for time or like, how do you kind of, uh, narrow down the information um yeah i think that's a that's a really great question and i think that the experience that i've really leaned on for that side of things has not been my climate knowledge because i work in the sector it's instead been the fact that i used to work as a tour guide i worked as a tour guide for around <laughs> right. six years and so for me taking very complex pieces of history and then condensing it down into a 10-minute narrative 
that's essentially what I worked on. That's essentially what I did for six years. And I taught German history on the 20th century on the streets of Berlin. So I'm talking about the most complex and the most horrendous, horrific parts of human history being played out on the streets of Berlin and having to sort of condense those into small nodes of information and also really recognizing like who's your audience what do they really need to know to truly understand this history to get a real sense of it and that I think I brought to when Anne-Marie came to me with the idea I immediately started historicizing it because that's kind of my background and yeah I find when you're really kind to an audience and when you're kind to a listener is when you actually take a complex idea and break it down into something that's relatively simple to understand because what you're saying to an audience member is I'm not gonna I'm not gonna try to act like I know way more about this than you do I'm gonna try and instead impart some knowledge that I have because I'm interested in what you think so I think it was more my tour guiding experience than than anything to do with what I've worked on in the past couple of years since the pandemic to do with the climate um, that really helped with with that side of things. Yeah, I think it's it, the the concern, I guess, in, in making something like this is that it could come across as, as preachy and, and it really doesn't. It comes across as really informed and sort of, I think the thing that caught my mind, I'm not sure if it's the first episode or the second episode, was the, the description of the open strip mine and mm -hmm. it kind of the comparisons with Mordor. And it was stuff like that that I was like, all right, yeah, I can really. And then when I looked at it online, I was like, all right, you know, that's a spot on kind of comparison. But yeah, I think it's 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 got legs for sure. I mean, just on that, like the first uh, wave of the protest movements that we started interviewing, the Ender Galenda generation, mm -hmm. you know, the ones who are actually going and and taking over diggers. The idea of that protest movement was to get those images on TV screens in the average middle-class German home. Like that was the idea of that protest movement. And I think it, what we tried to do with the podcast is sort of reconjure that in a way and try to like get that idea in the minds of people who were listening. Um, yeah, and it is like, if you go to an open strip mine, it is, yeah, there's no other way to explain it, I guess. Tolkien did a really good job. Yeah, I think, yeah, well, I mean, you, you mentioned Ender Galenda there and there was a question I kind of wanted to ask about it was when you were interviewing the, um, one of the activists you were speaking to about Ender Galenda, I forget, I forget their name, um, apologies, but uh, they mentioned that it, like that movement made climate activism sexy. And it made me sort of think about like, how important is this or that as an idea to getting people involved in climate protests? And do you think it's still like an attractive, an attractive way? Is it still sexy? I don't know, like that word. It felt very, um, when, when, when Germans use, use certain words in, the, in a way that you're not quite sure <laughs> you feel comfortable with as a British person, but that's my peccadillo rather than anything else. But um, yeah, I mean, do you feel like it's still attractive and do you feel like it's the modern protests have changed because they're more directed towards civil disobedience? Um, so yeah, that's Tadjo Muller, and he tends to use like the most colourful, brilliant language. Yeah, 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 yeah. He's also kind of like a professor, a thinker, a, a philosopher, mm. and also like a great public speaker. Um, so yeah, I think what's sexy about the climate movement, if we can call it sexy, is that it keeps bringing in new generations of people, and anything that young people do is quite sexy in comparison to what middle-aged people do. But I think what's really important to remember about the climate movement is that it hasn't lost any of the original people in it. Unfortunately, we haven't won this battle yet. So the people who are who started Ender Galenda are still just as engaged, have actually professionalised 
into this movement so professionalized now get essentially paid wages for what they do towards climate mitigation and the next generation are coming and doing sort of you know the young sexy new version of those protests but we have like three or four generations of people now who are part of this movement um so if if it's sexy it's because young people keep on coming to the movement and keep on innovating and keep on creating new styles of protests that capture people's imagination and try to move the necessary majorities towards action. Mm. For me, like the fact that so many really young people and children are kind of on the streets and have since Greta Thunberg been like mobilizing really visibly. Mm. I think actually the fact that like younger generations are kind of rejecting that it needs to be a counterculture thing actually sort of removes that the need for sexiness for me because like I mean when you know a lot of protest movements that were popular again not to get too like (laughs) historical on us but like the Red Army faction like they were sexy like they were wearing you know black leather the sunglasses Mm -hmm. they were outlaws and I think there's like there always is this element of people doing yeah, something illegal that mm. can be really thrilling. But I think in a way that, I mean, that goes into this exploration of the word radical as well, like what's radical and what's actually counterculture in the moment. Because I think like normalizing the fact that anyone can be an activist is is also a really important part of the modern day climate movement. Yeah, sure. I mean, you mentioned the, that, that point about um, radical protest and it is one of the sort of underlying themes of the podcast um, is that nature of activism and what can be considered radical protest. Uh, why do you think that topic in particular is so important? So I think radical tends to be used as a term for anything that is new. So each iteration of the climate movement, what we've tried to show in the in the podcast series is that we've got sort of successive generations with different tactics And each time we have like a new wave of different tactics, it tends to get this label of radical. And Mm -hmm. what is labeled as radical today may in fact in 10 years time be seen as quite quaint and nowhere near what we're seeing in 10 years, 15 years time. So it tends to be described as radical, but essentially what it's actually doing is describing something that is new or disruptive. I think what we're trying to also say in the podcast is it's quite dangerous, though, to use this term, because when people hear the word radical, they don't necessarily think of new or disruptive. They think instead of something that could be connoted with violence, with extremism, with something to be fearful of. And that ultimately is used by those with vested interests who don't want things to change, who don't want Mm. us to mitigate the climate crisis, who don't want in fact, us to move away from a fossil fuel addicted civilization or nation or or society, they would use this word radical in order to to essentially undermine the message of what that movement is trying to say. So I think that's what's dangerous about the word radical. And I guess on a final point, what I think is radical about this movement is that it isn't violent. What I think is radical is that it's not engaging in sabotage and i think what is so radical about the people that we interviewed for this podcast series is that they have all of them such an incredible belief in democracy and the reason i say that's radical is because why why would they 
You know, in 50 years that we've known about the climate crisis, democracy has failed to actually adequately address it. Mm. So what's radical is that people actually still believe that democracy can do something about this. And that gives me hope in a way, because I think as soon as we give up on that, then we're giving up a lot more than mm. just action on the climate crisis. I think we're also giving up our freedom. So, yeah, I'm... I think it's dangerous to use the word radical and I just wanted to sort of like finalize by saying it is what's radical I think is that they that they still believe in democracy and they still believe in peaceful protest. Mm-hmm. Yeah, absolutely. I think also um it's not news to anyone that we live in a pretty scary time where uh, punchy sound bites and things that are easily condensed and flattened get circulated around the media cycle in an instant and I think there's quite an intentional ability of politicians right now. I'm thinking a lot of the U.S., but it's also been happening in the six years that I lived in Germany. Um, Here, uh, politicians and how they use specific words, and I think it just, at its core, it really terrifies me. I think it can be very intentional by politicians to polarize public opinion, because that is in my opinion, a lot of what they want to do. It's about getting voted back in. It's about having people on their side. And then these words get reprinted by media sources in really irresponsible ways because they need the clicks, because they need the money. And it creates this mentality of us and them because any of those us versus them debates are the ones that people can easily grab onto and easily have an emotional response to without feeling like, oh, I have to research this, I have to go deep into it. And yeah, a word like radical is so, it's just so dangerous to throw out there. I think so many people, especially, I think maybe people from older generations in West Germany, especially, they see the word radical and there's an immediate fear there. There, I mean, Mm -hmm. there are a lot of people who are big voting base right now who did live through times when they were afraid that they might go to the shopping mall and get blown up. And I think that without, you know, speaking down to people in any way that you believe what you read, but I think that this is, this is what has been created around us. And it is very difficult to cut through media narratives to find reliable sources, to find balanced reporting that isn't just uh, juggling these sorts of turns. So I think in, in the in the year that we've been looking at this, there's less use of the word radical. I want to be a little bit fair to German media at this point. But just when it initially, especially with Let's Generation, it it really seemed lazy. There's a lot of lazy mm. repeating of that word. Yeah, I mean, if, if it did feel, and this is just an outside observer watching the media and sort of reading stuff every day, and I felt like it was not to 60. Like it went, it went really quick to a lot of outlets and outlets you were surprised by, like Süddeutsche Zeitung was, was it's like sort of my liberal news of choice, you know, and it's sort of the slightly left, left to center. And they were already writing articles or getting opinion pieces that were heavily kind of negative towards anyone who had the temerity to glue themselves to a road. And then, then you have like the, the violence that was meted out to people who would glue themselves to roads was also highly extreme it felt like it ramped up that tension and i think that maybe maybe they have taken a step back over the last few months but it's only for for as a good thing because it did 
those videos of people being sort of beaten up on the street or pulled off the street we seem to be coming up on twitter over and over again with with a disturbing regularity but um one of the things i've been thinking about with regards to let's the um generation is is the one of the the protests that got a lot of heat and a lot of attention was the one uh, over the summer at the Brandenburg Tor, and it made me think about the sort of decentralised nature of these climate protests, where you have small groups of people who are really motivated to kind of get the word out and and kind of take direct action. And the thing I'm sort of thinking about is is that a positive? Do you think for the movement, or is it is it is it not when when sort of you don't have like a centralized message necessarily, or you don't have a centralized leadership. Is that is that a, a, a important aspect of, of let's say, I'm not sure what you think. Yeah, so I think um, not to be a mouthpiece of let's Generation or whatever, but I think if you were asking them that question, they would say that they have a code of conduct and their code mm -hmm. of conduct is very strict and it is like nonviolent and it is passive resistance so that's when you see them you know if they are being attacked they will literally just go limp and it is also a tactic to try and make um trying to arrest them and take them away harder but it is also a way of being completely passive and not aggravating a situation or making it even heightened so i would think from their perspective they do actually have quite a strict code of conduct and if you don't abide by that then you're not really allowed to sort of affiliate yourself with let's kind of on but I think in terms of what you're pointing out, which is this idea of decentralized activism structures, that's sort of like a necessity. And we've seen that across history, whenever you have large civil rights movements, they have, you know, affiliate groups all over, you know, a country or whatever region that they're sort of focusing on. Because when people, I guess, aren't doing this for a living, Firstly, they need their own autonomy, otherwise they'll drop out quite quickly. So that's one thing, trying to keep people in the movement means you have to give them some of their own autonomy. And secondly, I think it's also an idea that this should be sort of like flat hierarchy and people do come into the movement with a lot of passion. And in order to harness that, you shouldn't necessarily be directing it from the top. So I think there's a lot of reasons why it does decentralize. But I think that ultimately, like with a group like Let's Declaration, you can't really call yourself an affiliate if you don't actually abide by their core principles, which they outline on their website and they make very clear. Mm. The organization of it, I find really interesting. And also the kind of just the, the willingness of people to do it. The, I find that's really impressive. Um, I mean, that's um, one of the things that it is just ordinary people going out and, and motivated by by what's happening around them. And, and that's a point I kind of wanted to touch on. You make a big point of saying like the, the most of the protesters are just ordinary people. And this obviously is blindingly obvious, but uh, you, you mentioned it a few times. Well, why do you think it's so important to highlight the, the that aspect? Oh, I feel like, and I can, I can never speak about this without sounding a bit hokey or a bit cheesy, but <laughs> <It's all right. laughs> I, I really, I mean, the reason I'm an activist, the reason I'm a journalist, the reason I want to share stories is basically empathy. I think the only way that we can change anyone's mind is basic empathy. And that is to hear people describe their experiences. It's how I'm moved. It's how I'm inspired to join anything that's bigger than myself you know not every day not to maybe the same extent that i've seen and some of the people i've met through this podcast but i just think it's if we can't 
if we can't create more empathy in a world in a world that is so so hurtling away from any sort of connection between humans mm -hmm. then what are we doing then why are we here um the, the the core also is that these people can speak for themselves and they they're just not getting asked to and so i think one of the things we also wanted to do with not only provide a framework of like here's some of the basic core facts that we have now understood and we want to present them in a way of like here is what we're learning as we're learning it but also here are the voices of the people who are putting their bodies on the line and sitting across from Tim Vexum and Kasim from Letzte Generation in his kitchen and, and having him tell me you know I don't want to do this I don't want to be being dragged off by cops I don't want to have the average German Oma come by and hit me up. You know, that that's not an exact quote. But, like, you know, I don't want to have the average German hate me or physically want to hurt me. I'm doing this because I don't think that we have another option. And hearing stories like that, it's just like, yeah, this is what I want people to understand and to to absorb from this is that can you can you get anything out of that? Can you hear that and think, wow, okay, these young people for the most part, but people from all different backgrounds, all different classes, all different ages are risking something. And why are they doing that? I just think that's, mm. that's what I want people to get out of it. That's why I do what I do. Um, I mean, this is, this is a sort of the, the thing about the podcast that is interesting as well is that it doesn't dwell on the negativity. I think you've sort of expressed, Anna-Marie, that why, why that comes from the positivity that seems to flow through the podcast um is a kind of center point and and it brings me to the sort of last question which is um this question of climate doomism and the idea that we're past the point of being able to do anything at all about global warming so let's just hide under the bed and do nothing how do you think that can be countered aside from just being really really positive <laughs> positive thoughts how can we counter that so climate doomism is a luxury of the moneyed elite and I think that's how we counter it, is understanding what it is. And climate doomism is a tactic. It's a tactic on the other side. And it's something that is aiding and abetting the ability of those in power and with vested interests to hinder the progression and the movement away from the fixation and the addiction to fossil fuels. It is a luxury that we do not have. We, the normal people who do not have access to billions of euros to buy ourselves some kind of compound in New Zealand or Scotland or any other place that the 1.52 degree scenario show us will be livable in 2050. We don't have those luxuries. So either we do something about this or we resign ourselves to an absolutely appalling future that is it's untenable to think that we just don't do anything about this so i think that yeah climate doomism is is a luxury of the money delete and and that is kind of i think the way that we that we counter this you know there have been social movements that have successfully managed to counter the wills of the money delete for hundreds of years we've gotten workers rights out of them we've gotten you know, maternity rights out of them. We've got, you know, feminism has managed to create a world that is not yet equal between men and women, but is getting there. We've gotten mm -hmm. huge concessions on civil rights out of these money delete. You know, we have, through social movements, managed to continuously 
deprive them of more and more of their power. And I think that that is the way that we counter climate doomism by seeing it for what it is, which is nothing to do with it's all over, we can't do anything about it. It's all to do with vested interests, essentially trying to keep things the way that they are. And I think that one point that is really important to really get into people's heads is if we pass 1.5, which at this point, sorry to say, is pretty much inevitable, then we fight for 1.6, and then we fight for 1.7, and then we fight for 1.8, because every tenth of a degree is hundreds of thousands of lives, if not millions of people's life quality. You know, this is not, it's not like we just finish, if we can't do 1.5, then we just give up completely. We fight for every single tenth of a degree because every single tenth of a degree counts in making hundreds of thousands of people, millions of people's lives livable in the next decades and the next centuries. The one key word I would add that kind of just to jump off is community. And I think we live in an age where Western, sorry, but capitalist structures don't want us to remember how important and how powerful community is. And yeah, Izzy talked about all we all we have to do is look at the history, but it's I think it's really hard to do that when we operate in a 2023 world and are getting more and more isolated from one another on the daily. So I think communities are powerful and we just have to remember that a community can be anything. Yeah, I, I, I totally agree. I mean, it's a, it's a shame we have to end it there. I mean, you basically like I'm, I'm two steps away from slapping my hands and saying preach you know it's like pretty spot on um everything you said i wanted to thank you both for, for being on the podcast and uh, for listeners sticking points voices of germany's climate movement is two episodes in you can get it on the uh, radio uh, spätkauf podcast feed which is all over the place i'm guessing the same places you'd find this particular podcast and if you found this then you'll be able to find that um so yeah izzy uh, Anne marie thank you very much for your time and thank you for the conversation Thanks so much for having us. Thanks so much. This was great. That brings us to the end of the show. We are all off to get our own Gary branded vomit buckets because it's just too cute to pass up. Gary branded vomit buckets, two for a pen, two for a pen. Roll up, roll up. Okay, enough of the hawking. If you're enjoying the podcast, why not give us a rating on Apple Podcasts, which only takes a minute and can really help us. You can also rate us on Spotify, so chuck some stars our way there as well. Retweet us, share a link, or post with the hashtag DecadesFromHome, or lowercase, on Twitter. As ever, if you have any questions, feedback, or maybe an article or topic you'd like us to cover, you can tweet Dillion at Dillialgamer, and you can tweet me at 40%German. You can also get us on decadesfromhome at gmail.com. If you have time, take a look at 40percentgerman.com. Weekly articles are up every Saturday. All that's left to say is thanks and bis some next time. Cheers! Cheers.